Hello and welcome to Sanford Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Jeff Smith. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Darko. Looking forward to it. Great. Yeah, please just go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. So my name is Jeff Smith. I've been in the production operations space for my entire career over the last 20 years. I currently work for a company called Centro, which is a uh, advertising software platform based out of Chicago. I've been with them for about four and a half years. And I just recently finished up a book, Operations Anti-Patterns, DevOps Solutions, which I think we'll probably talk a little bit about today. That sort of helps individual contributors and engineering leads sort of jumpstart these DevOps transformations without necessarily having top-down support or buy-in. Great, great. Yeah, congrats on publishing the book. And yeah, before we dive into it, we can rewind a little bit. You said that there is 20 years of a career behind you. So what are the things that led to the book and how it, you know, kind of condensed into a Yeah. So, you know, everyone's got a weird, like technical journey. I didn't start like the traditional path, right? Where you go to college and then you get an internship. I was a terrible high school student, like absolutely terrible. I graduated, I think it was like fifth from the bottom. I was always interested in computers, but that just never translated to actual schoolwork, right? I was a gifted student, but just didn't want to put in the work or energy because it was boring to me. So lo and behold, I'm working a dead-end job doing this data entry stuff, and I'm reading uh, Richard Stevens' book, TCPIP Illustrated. Now, at the time, it's way over my head, right? Like, it is super in-depth, but, you know, it's fascinating to me. And I had it on the desk, and behind me was the entrance to the IT department. And one day, the ops manager walks out, and he sees it. He starts up a conversation. So, you know, a month later, he's like, hey, I've got this second shift operator position. Would you be interested? And I was like, yes, absolutely. So I started working for that company in their IT department. I spent like 10 years there. I went back to school, worked during the day and then worked nights. And I decided to branch out. I'd been there 10 years. It was my first gig. And I was like, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to think every company is as screwed up as this one. Turns out that's true, but everyone's screwed up in their own different, unique ways. So my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was like, let's open up the search. Let's go anywhere. So we chose Chicago. So I got a job in Chicago, you know, bounce around to a couple different locations. And then I discovered this thing called DevOps through a Blacks in Technology organization that I was a part of. Uh, DevOps Days Conference in Chicago had partnered with them and they were doing, you know, like a diversity ticket or something like that. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go. And I went and these guys were talking about all of the problems that I had been living, right, for the last 10 years. I was like, yes, these are exactly the issues that I'm facing and dealing with. So that sort of like, you know, fire charged me up. And I was like, you know, I have to start implementing some of these things in different organizations. At the time, I was at a large company, Walters Kluwer, which was this huge globally distributed organization. There was some traction there, but it was difficult because just so many people were so spread out across time zones, across even organizational structures. So I left there and went to a company, Grubhub, here in Chicago. And, you know, Grubhub was like the perfect fit and the perfect size to sort of experiment with some of these ideas and concepts because, one, they were a technology company. So they had that sort of, you know, technological focus and energy. And two, they were relatively small at the time, right? Like we could get most of the engineering team into a single room. So, you know, we started silently sort of implementing these things without calling them DevOps. 
And then lo and behold, we started looking at acquiring a company. That merger was also going to trigger a replatforming for us, right? And it was a perfect time to sort of start introducing some of these ideas and concepts. So we took the approach of having like an embedded stream team with SREs embedded in the teams. And that was a huge win because it gave us the opportunity to sort of see what it would be like if people had operational resources dedicated to their work and their project and some of the pros and cons of that. So that was an exciting time. But, you know, I started getting a little disillusioned and started looking at new opportunities. And a couple of people that worked for me at Grubhub were working at this company, Centro. And they said, hey, this has been a great company and we're looking for someone to lead our migration from data center to AWS. And, you know, we thought about you and we'd love for you to come and lead the team. So that was four and a half years ago, and I'm still there, still enjoying it. I've got a number of Grubhub alumni with me there. <laughs> so, you know, we're sort of like putting the band back together. You know, the operation space, it's funny how like your first job leads to the next job and leads to the next job. So I don't know that I chose operations. It's more like it chose me. Been having a lot of fun with it. Right now we're playing around with Kubernetes migration and just really fun and exciting to work closely with developers, understand their pain points and sort of transform the relationship from this adversarial you know, like me versus you to, all right, how do we both work together to get things done? Hey, everyone. Sanford has published an open source book called CICD with Docker and Kubernetes. It combines just the right amount of best practices and practical advice for shipping cloud native apps. Download your free copy today at sanfordci.com. How idea about the book? Was it a single thing that triggered, you know, okay, I need to put this into a book and share it with the people? Or Yeah. So when I first found out about DevOps days, right, that kicked off also the beginning of like my speaking career, right? So I started speaking at a bunch of different events, which meant attending a bunch of different events. And the more I attended these events, the more I realized like we were hearing a lot from these companies they were unicorns, right? You know, my first job was with a local HMO, right? And then subsequent jobs before Grubhub, they weren't tech jobs, but they were, you know, rooted in technology like everything else is. And the problems that these sorts of companies face were completely different than the pie in the sky, like don't worry about profit, right? We're only worried about revenue, right? Like the dynamics are just completely different. So I wanted to write a book that spoke to those people while at the same time, you know, took away the lessons that were valuable, but framed it in a context of their reality. Because, you know, whenever someone uses Uber as an example to me, I was like, well, if my company could lose a billion dollars a year, I could probably do those cool, awesome things, too. And that's not the discount that, you know, Uber isn't doing great things. I'm just saying the dynamics are different. <laughs> so I really wanted to write a book for those folks. I had been approached by Manning previously to write a book on Puppet. And at the time, I just had my daughter when they approached me and I was like, eh, now nah, it's probably not a good time. So then when they reached out again, they were like, hey, do you have a book idea? I was like, yeah, actually, you know, I've been wanting to write something, you know, akin to DevOps. And it was interesting for Manning because they don't really publish those sorts of books, right? It's sort of like they're real hard-nosed technical books. And this was more of a soft, squishy, got to talk to people. But, you know, it was a great learning experience for both of us because they have a very methodical approach to how they go about creating these books. But, you know, they paired me with an editor and we got along great. She pushed back in all the right ways. It was really incredible and enlightening experience as well. But the genesis of the book really came from that idea of like, hey, you know, conference talks and blog posts from Netflix can be cancerous. <laughs> and if you're constantly comparing yourself to these technological giants, right, like it's great for inspiration, but you may not be solving your own problems. You might be solving someone else's. 
yeah, that's someone else's reality, not yours. You know, maybe they have a team of whatever number of people with, you know, this many number of experience <laughs> behind you and you're working a company which has, you know, maybe three guys who are trying to piece things together and yeah, survive. So great intro, very interesting. And let's dive in. So can you give us an overview of what are you presenting in the book and uh, what can people get out of it? Yeah, so the idea in the book is really centered around these sort of operational patterns that we see sort of over and over again that lead to organizational complexity, uh, less operational efficiency, and a lot of them are rooted in people problems, right? We're so quick to grab a tool to solve something, but in my experience, the order of solving these issues has always been people first, then process, then tools, right? You got to get the people on board with whatever it is your vision is, right? Once your people are on board, you can start to work on your process. Because I think where so many transformations of any type fail is that you don't get buy-in from people and then the process happens to them, right? <laughs> and, you know, it's very different if I come up with a brand new workflow together with people and we implement it together versus, hey, I've been in this closet thinking about this all year long, right? And I could deliver the perfect process, but just by instinct, you're kind of like, you know, I wasn't part of this, so I'm not interested because you didn't think about my viewpoints. So, you know, getting the people on board to together form the process. And then once you form the process, find tools that support and implement and make your process easier. So often we start with a tool and then we sort of back into the process on how it's going to solve our problem, right? How many times have you heard someone say like, you know, oh, are you guys using Kubernetes? You should be doing Kubernetes because then you can do this, 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 and this. And then in your mind, you're thinking of all this cool stuff, but you're like, is this really solving like what an actual pain point I have is, or is this something that is just like cool? And not to say that these things aren't problems, but they're probably not the biggest problems because if they were, I'd be looking for this tool already or looking to address this as opposed to finding out about it and then thinking backwards. So the book deals a lot with the dynamics of that sort of thought process, right? So how do we get people involved? How do we get people on board? How do we build consensus? Another thing is sort of like looking at, your processes much more abstractly and trying to determine where value is being added. So one of the things that we talk about a lot, and especially in like organizations that are, I don't want to call them legacy organizations, but older organizations that are maybe following ITIL or things like that, right, with change management, how do you leverage technology to enhance your process, right? So for developers, when we're talking about change management, really what we're talking about is some sort of review and approval process prior to something getting deployed. And it's like, well, that's really the same thing we call a pull request, right? <laughs> a pull request is just another form of change management. So we don't have to have this knee-jerk reaction to change management as a process. We just have to think about how it fits into our workflows and how we can leverage its processes that we're already doing today. So how do you start to move more of these changes that have historically been manually and moving them to more code-focused implementations that can then benefit from a PR review process? It'll become a lot more robust and efficient because for starters, I don't know if you've ever worked in an organization with change management, but typically you're presenting this highly technical change to a bunch of people that have no idea what you're talking about. And then they ask you like, well, do you think this is safe? And it's like, do you think I'd be here if I didn't? Right. <laughs> so there's very little value that gets added to those sorts of processes. But if I can pass this on to another technical engineer, a technical person, and they can see the fruit of the work and then comment and evaluate and we can make updates and then they can give the approval and we can move, 
not only does it satisfy audit requirements, but it's faster, it's better collaboration. So it's just sort of win-win all around. So it's like, how do we make sure that our processes are structured in such a way that they can be implemented and resolved? So those are just like two high concepts. As you very nicely presented that, let's call them three layers. So the first one being, you know, people and how we agree on this, how we, you know, discuss this and, you know, come to something. And then the process and the tools as a third thing. I mean, I myself guilty of, you know, working in the other direction, you know, in more and more occasions than, you know, anything else where there is something and, you know, there is that straight line to tool. It seems like the best line to get there, to grab something. And then, you know, <laughs> we will see how it will surface, you know, in other parts. I think we're wired that way. Yeah, yeah. It's the most practical way to, to say, as an engineer, you know, if there is a hole, I find something to you know, tape it or, you know, <laughs> to fix it. So the leak or whatever it is from your career, which is now quite long, do you see what is maybe a tipping point for engineers for, you know, switching that mindset or how easy it is? Because I think that more than half of the engineers today will definitely, you know, go straight to the tool, solve the very concrete problem and, you know, maybe will not be so happy about loading in their head all the social, you know, discussions, consequences, processes, and all that as a first thing. Yeah, I think one of the tipping points will be as an industry is, you know, as we start to move closer and closer to these more like self-contained teams, I think one of the things that will sort of push us into just more naturally evolving this way is the idea that the consequences of those decisions become hyper-localized. And what I mean by that is today, a tool choice reverberates throughout the organization. And the person that makes that decision isn't necessarily the person that feels the pain and or consequences of those trade-offs. Now that we're moving to these contained teams and you've got engineering people sort of being responsible for the entire life cycle, all the way from conception to production and deployment, those consequences move closer and closer to the decision makers. And I think eventually there's going to be a tipping point where people say like, why do we keep running into this issue? Or why do we keep running into this resistance? Or why aren't people like, you know, understanding the beauty of this new tool and why it's going to save everything. And I think as that gets closer to the decision makers, you know, these things will sort of naturally sort of manifest themselves as we start to do that postmortem. Because the thing is, you know, engineers are typically just, you know, naturally analytical. So when they see the problem sort of recurring and they feel that pain, they're going to want to break it down and look at it. And I honestly feel that the people process tools thing will evolve as part of that postmortem process. So I do have a lot of hope. I think the thing that we have to remember, though, is that as engineers, even as human beings, right, like we were saying, reaching for the tool is sort of the default natural state, right? And it takes active effort to combat that and say, like, hang on, let's back up and let's go into the people part, right? So. It's not like there are people that are just doing a bad job. There are people that simply aren't recognizing their own instinctual nature and therefore aren't playing defensively against that, right? It's like what people say about democracy as an institution, right? It has to always be protected because it's really fragile. It's the same thing with this process, right? It's a really fragile thing and it's so easy to grab a tool and get running. All of us have been part of a solution or a product where it's like, you know, we're going to launch the MVP. And then it's like the MVP quickly becomes, you know, full on production. And you can't make all of the changes that you wanted to make because it's out and being used in the world. So I think that this is something that will evolve over time as a result of the org structure changes. 
Hey, I'm going to take a quick break here and tell you that Semaphore has a new book out, called CI/CD with Docker and Kubernetes. If you are looking to deploy cloud-native apps, it's going to show you the most productive way of doing that. And the best of all, it's free. Download your free copy today at semaphoreci.com. I wanted to ask you if you can maybe cross this, what you have been saying with maybe the size and the path in the company or like the journey that the company is on. So I spoke to a guy and he's working with, um, you know, very successful post series, a startup, and they are now like, you know, 30, 40 engineers and there's a lot of growth behind. And yes, they would want to double their, you know, engineering capacity. <laughs> And of course, they will have a number of, you know, challenges that they will face, but they also face a number of them right now, like, you know, tool choices, you know, technology changes, you know, operation stuff. How do we do this? This team is monitoring things in this way. This other team is monitoring in the other way. The journey is that they had freedom among those teams, but they want to now put things in writing. What are the processes? What are the tools? Why we are using this? Why we are using that? So when the new people are coming to the company, it's not all tribal knowledge. You know, ask Jeff, ask Darko, ask whoever. And by that, the story goes in the direction of we will standardize. So we are using Prometheus. We are not using InfluxDB anywhere. Or we are using this or that. Can you maybe share experiencing on that, like team size, freedom versus, you know, structure? That is something we very much experience at Grubhub and are starting to experience at Centro. And I think what happens is the people that are attracted to startups are very different than the people that are attracted to like established companies, right? Startup engineers, you know, they love to just sort of be involved with everything, right? They love the idea of figuring something out and getting it launched. You know, there was a blog post a while ago about a V1 and a V2 engineer. The V1 engineer is a person that likes to start stuff, but maybe not finish it, right? And the V2 engineer comes in and sort of tidies it up. And you need both, right? It's not like one is better than the other. And I feel like at startups, you sort of go through this phase where once you get to a particular size, just for sanity's sake, you have to standardize. And that's when you start to begin to see the shift in personnel, right? So those early engineers start to leave and move on. And then you start to attract these V2 engineers that are coming in and they're saying, oh my goodness, we're using 30 different database technologies. We got to standardize on a thing. This was exactly the lines that I heard. Their biggest problem is multiple database stores. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got a preferred database store for whatever reason. And at the end of the day, it's usually like, you know, one feature or something like that. So the thing that I think is important, especially from an ops perspective, is if you want to maintain that balance, because there are reasons to sort of standardize and say like, hey, this is the way it's going to be. And, you know, we just have to deal with it. But if you want to still encourage that freedom, the thing that we used to do is what we call like the yellow brick road, right, where we build up a lot of tooling and a lot of automation around a particular set of technology choices, right? And we say like, these are the things that have to be implemented no matter what. You have to have endpoints that report metric data, right? You have to be able to instrument this. You have to be able to automate a restart. You have to be able to accept these sorts of signals. And if you go the chosen technology path, it's simply a library import, right? If not, you can choose your own tech, that's fine but you still have to meet all of these standards and you got to build those. So when faced with those sorts of trade-offs, you're like, 
do I really need MongoDB that badly? You know, because it's like, if you do, then it's worth that effort, right? And that sort of even validates the technology choice and that like, we're willing to do this heavy lifting to get the right tool. Whereas if you're like, well, I really don't know if we want to do all that, then it's like, okay, well then maybe, you know, we're talking about a preference as opposed to a better technology choice. So that path served us very well at Grubhub. And, you know, we're looking to implement something very similar at Central with the advent of Kubernetes, right? And people being able to launch different things. So it's like, you know, we want people to have flexibility, but at the same time, we want to make sure we're making intelligent choices for the good of the business. Because, you know, the unspoken truth is for your top engineers, you got to offer them some flexibility or they're going to go where they can do it or where the cool technology that they want to play with exists, right? So you want to make sure that you're giving people an area to grow, right? Because like, you know, some people just get bored coding Ruby after 10 years. You know, they want to try something new. You know, they want to try Kotlin or, you know, Erlang or whatever. So coming up with a structure where people can sort of embrace that polyglot mentality is good, but you still have to protect the organization and make sure that you can support it. To that end, actually, interesting point is like one of the things that we do at Centro is when we scale the operations team, we don't scale it based on the number of services or servers. We scale it based on the number of unique technologies. The idea being that, you know, a person can only hold, let's say, seven technologies in their head that they can, you know, massively support. And if we get beyond that, we have to scale, right? So then that puts pressure on the organization as well to say like, well, if you choose this brand new database store amongst the other database stores we already have, we have to scale the ops team because we don't have anyone with a mental bandwidth to be able to support whatever new tool you're choosing. And then that puts the organizational pressure in place to sort of evaluate and say, like, do we need to do this? To be honest, this is the first time that I'm hearing that there is such a correlation that you can establish and follow. I mean, we are in that microservices you know, world and responsibilities and we try to keep it there that there is a handful of services that you're responsible for and then if you want to you know launch something new that's not maybe directly mapping more mapping to feature than microservice i maybe made a bad analogy here but okay that's a great feature we would love to have it you know but we don't want to end you know feature to be responsible for to maintain it okay we can build it so that's the easy part, but who will maintain it over the next <laughs> five plus years in order to scale? Okay, and I checked one of your speeches, I think it was for a couple of years ago. I think it's good, bad, and ugly about DevOps or you know something like that. So I'm going in the bad and ugly direction in this conversation. And do you have any experiences once you know a technology is embraced and it's around for a certain period of time, and then maybe some people you know move on or it turns out to be a bad choice? Have you have experience of managing that or cleaning that up? <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, it's messy, right? Because what ends up happening is the person that really loved it leaves and then it gets moved into a corner and then it becomes that thing that is running and everyone is afraid to touch it because it's dangerous, right? Inevitably, what happens is whatever platform it is on becomes end of life <laughs> and we've got to do something with it. And suddenly like, okay, who's going to do this? I think the biggest thing is you need the right team, right? To sort of approach this. And that is going to be a mix of like the V2 and the V1 person, right? Because 
it's very different when you have an established technology that's doing the job already versus greenfield. So you don't want a V1 person coming in and sort of like implementing just like these minimum sets and then walking away, right? So you kind of need a combination of those two types of engineers. So when you tackle those problems, I say the personnel that tackles it is extremely important. The next thing you got to do is you got to get organizational buy-in, right, from leadership to establish that like, this is a thing that we've deemed as important that we just can't turn off that no one knows anything about. That is inherently risky, right? And it's not just risky from the sense that re-implementing it, it's risky in terms of like the current operational infrastructure as well. So it's going to take some time and it's going to take some energy. And I think the thing that keeps people from diving into that is fear, they're afraid of touching the thing that's working, right? So we need to offer that sort of like psychological safety of like, hey, you know, we understand that this is like uncharted territory for us as an organization right now. And, you know, there's going to be some bumps in the road. Having that psychological safety honestly gets rid of so many of the issues that are encountered because people have no problem re-architecting a solution that they understand, right? So it's clearly not about the process of re-architecture. It's about understanding all the things that this thing does, communicating with all of the stakeholders, right? Nothing is worse than that feeling like you change something and then there's a group that you didn't even know existed that's like, hey, we do X, Y, Z off this thing and you just broke it. It's like, oh, oops. So instituting some sort of psychological safety to give the team the freedom to experiment and fail. And then the other thing is just, you know, structure the team so that they can iterate fast, iterate quickly, deploy quickly. I think the key that I've always done in my experience is the deployment process for this new solution has to be rock solid and the rollback process has to be rock solid because you never know when you're going to implement something that just isn't quite right. And then the ideal pattern for that migration to me is the strangler pattern, right? Where it's like you pull features slowly off of that old architecture into the new architecture so that when you do inevitably make the mistake, because you're going to make a mistake and deploy and <laughs> implement something incorrectly, you just flop it back over to the other one, right? You just flop it back over to the original source. You know, you might have to figure out how to do data migration if you're changing data stores or things like that. But, you know, all in all, it's better than having to stumble through the process with a broken server, not knowing the true impact. Because the thing is, whenever you're migrating those things, not only is it like something is broken, but you don't always have a full understanding or context of what that break means for the organization. It's only later that you realize, oh, the C-suite's reporting for sales has been busted because of this change that we made because it's some feeder system that we didn't know about. So I think the strangler pattern is a huge thing to be able to just slowly migrate functionality from one to the other. You stick a you know load balancer in front of them and route particular traffic, you know, assuming it's a web app to the new nodes or the old nodes. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is psychological safety and building the right team. There is a V1, there is a V2. Is there a V3 engineer? I think there is, right? And I think the V3 engineer is the engineer that everyone hopes they need. And that's the one when it's wildly successful and you are hitting scaling challenges that you weren't anticipating, right? Because like everyone wants to have Twitter size growth, right? Everyone wants to be getting that number of transactions. But the truth be told, as an engineer, making the trade-offs for like the issues that you've got today for a future state you may never make, right? Like that's a deal that most engineers aren't going to make, right? They're like, well, if we get to that size traffic volume, that's a great problem to have and we'll deal with it. But how you solve those problems can become unconventional 
to certain types of engineers that aren't experienced with those types of traffic volumes, right? So if you've largely worked in a synchronous environment, you know, having to deal with an asynchronous infrastructure or asynchronous stack pattern, it's a different mode of thinking, right? And it's a different challenge. Like, you know, you get to a point where a bigger database isn't enough anymore. Now you've got to scale and shard across multiple databases. That's a different set of solutions and patterns. You know, in my mind, that's the V3 engineer, right? That's the one that's coming in and say like, okay, we need to transform this thing into something that is highly scalable, but it's a good problem to have. And I guess the other thing is like, it's interesting to be able to identify those V3 engineers because if you don't have that scale, they get bored very quickly, right? And then they start inventing problems to solve, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we have this conversation with my engineers all the time. When we see a poor SQL query running on a database server, right? Our instinct is like, this is so sloppy. You need to get better. But then when we talk with the engineers and we realize the effort that it takes, we're like, you know, it's probably easier for us to click this checkbox in AWS and just make the DB bigger than to spend three months, right? Like retooling all of these SQL queries. Yes, it's bad. We understand it's bad, but the effort involved doesn't make sense. And that's where it's important where that you guys are, oh, where you guys are a true team, right? <laughs> if you're a true team, you recognize that sometimes the trade-off may mean more pain for you in the short term, or it may violate some principle that you have, but in the long term, it's helping the organization out better. So if it's like, yeah, I've got a thing where I don't want to overspend in AWS, but if clicking this checkbox and making this a DB, you know, M4X large instead of an M4 large solves six months worth of effort, it's worth it. I see us, you know, having to make those kinds of decisions all the time. Are we going to make that probably multi-week, some of a multi-month optimization thing, or we are going to postpone it? Maybe indefinitely, but maybe we will get back to it. And it's also about the performance. Are we going to shave off that additional, you know, 10 milliseconds or not? Or are we going to do that in six months? Yeah, and it's always a trade-off. And I think the big thing too is, and I tell this to my team all the time, like the most important thing you can do in a pull request or commit message is provide context for the decision that you made in a particular change. And I think context, even in these cases for architecture is a huge bit. So one thing that we do are like architecture decision records where we can very quickly sort of highlight, this is the trade-off that we made and these are the decisions and this is why we made those choices. So that when the V3 engineer finally does show up, they can look and understand why a particular decision was made that today, now that we're at that growth size, looks dumb. But in the context, in the moment, it's like, oh, okay, these were the trade-offs they were facing, and this is the choice that they made. Yeah, that's great. I have to say that on the product side and the business side, we have those kinds of decision logs, why we made certain decisions, why not. But somehow we never get to the point that we have that for the architectural decisions. We have a specs, but I think that we are internally not that clear on that part. Okay, then that's something that I have to go back and <laughs> improve. Okay, so thank you, Jeff. We are going to link to your book. Are there maybe any speeches that you're going to give soon on some of these virtual events? Yeah, there's a few that we're working on. Actually, today I'm doing something with the DevOps London Exchange. So the best place to check is my website, attainabledevops.com. I'll link to a bunch of stuff there, but you know, I've got an event today. I've got another event coming up with DevOps Days Seattle and another talk coming up, which I think we're scheduling for April with Gremlin for Chaos Engineering. 
But yeah, I'll link to all those on my website as well. So you can find them there. Great. We will. Thank you so much. Good luck with those talks. And thanks again. Thank you. Had a lot of fun.